Today on CityCast Salt Lake, our job every Friday is to round up the news of the week and help catapult you into the weekend. Today we're doing something a little bit different because we want to highlight some really important news that happened in our city. Salt Lake Tribune reporter Peyton Harkins filed a big story this week related to a police shooting, and she's going to tell us about it in her own words. And later, I'll share some other stories from this week. It's Friday, September 23rd, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Peyton Harkins, welcome to CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Let's get into it. So you came out with a follow-up story this week about Lyndon Cameron, an autistic child who was shot by the police two years ago. This case happened shortly after the summer protests of 2020. Is that right? Yeah, it did. It happened in September. So just a few, few months removed from that. Yeah. Memory is a funny thing, so I always have to check. Yeah. For anyone who isn't familiar with this story, could you give us a little bit of context? Like, what happened that night? Yeah, so, you know, what we know is that on the night of September 4th, Lyndon Cameron's mom, Golda Barton, she had called police because her son, Lyndon, he's autistic and he was having, you know, kind of an episode. She said that he was out of control and she was trying to get mental health help for him. She thought that he needed to be committed to like a hospital environment. You know, she was trying to basically ask for help because she wasn't sure how to get him to someplace their insurance would cover. And, you know, he's a 13 year old boy and she's, you know, a mom. And so she just, she just wanted some help. And so she called police asking for some help with him. And, you know, that that's why they were there that night. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the police arrive it feels like things escalate. I mean, I've watched some of the body cam footage, but for anyone who hasn't, like, how did things proceed after that? Yeah, it's like, there's actually a lot that happened kind of before police even saw Lyndon that night. Like, the body camera footage that we have, you know, it's like police arrive, they talk to the mom, you know, kind of away from the house, you know. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of giving them like a rundown of what's going on, you know, like explains that he, you know, needs mental health help, has some sensory issues, um, explains that he, like, police are one of his triggers because um, earlier that year in January, actually, his grandpa was shot by police in Nevada. And so, you know, he, he has an aversion to police already. And so, you know, she wanted to make sure police were aware of that. And so, you know, police know that and... You know, we kind of hear officers as they're talking too, as they're walking up to this house in the dark. And, you know, one of one of the officers is like, you know, why basically why are we even here? You know, like this is a psych issue. I don't you know, I don't think that this needs a police response like, you know, this could be dangerous for all of us, basically. And another officer, actually, the one that ends up shooting Lyndon says something like, yeah, I don't. I don't want to, you know, get into a shooting with this kid just because he's upset, you know, and then they they arrive at the house. He's there. You know, they have their flashlights. They have their guns drawn. And, you know, all that's their they're yelling commands. You know, all that's kind of a sensory issue for somebody with autism, you know, and he's already afraid of police. So he yeah. like goes over a fence and runs away. And then, you know, body camera footage shows police chasing after him. They're yelling at him to get on the ground, you know, kind of over and over. And when he doesn't listen to those commands, that's when they shoot him and the lawsuit says the officer fired 11 times. We're not, you know, crystal clear on that yet, but quite yeah. a few times. Do we have any reason or did the police have any reason to believe that Lyndon was armed? As far as I know, she doesn't indicate that he has, you know, a real weapon of any kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just feels like 
antithetical that um, if the police know that their presence could be a trigger for him to, you know, be going through the normal protocol of yelling commands and things like that, it feels just hard to wrap your head around. But do we know, like, where is Lyndon Cameron now? Because it's two years later. Presumably he's 15 years old. How's his life changed? You know, I, I haven't spoken to him. We or you know, his family in quite some time. And actually, you know, I've, I've worked on stories about Lyndon, but I haven't really been the main reporter on them. But it's mm-hmm. like, you know, part of the reason his family got such a large settlement is because he's going to have lingering health issues because of this. And they wanted to make sure that he would be, you know, kind of set up for the future to pay for those medical expenses. And so it's like, you know, his family has said stuff before, like he's not going to be able to walk normally again. You know, like mm-hmm. the bullets that did hit him, from my understanding, injured some of his internal organs, like his intestines and stuff like that. Hmm. And so, you know, I haven't talked to him or his family recently, but we do have indications that, you know, he's going to be dealing with the injuries from this shooting for the rest of his life. Yeah. And we're talking, of course, physical as well as mental and emotional Sure. Health and yeah. well-being. Let's talk about the settlement, because that is the reason that this story is back in the news this week. The city reached a $3 million settlement with Lyndon Cameron's parents. My understanding is this is the largest settlement the city's reached related to a police shooting ever? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's okay. Basically, mm-hmm. it's the largest settlement in a case where like somebody has filed a lawsuit alleging a deprivation of rights. And so in this Mm. case, they allege that police used excessive force to deprive Lyndon of his rights to not be shot that night, basically. Mm. And so you can imagine that there'd be any number of lawsuits that could make a deprivation of rights argument, you know, so it's the largest of that kind. Wow. So in some ways, that's even broader than I thought. Yeah. Is this settlement an admission of guilt on the part of the city? Like, why settle before Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gills even ruled on whether this was a justified use of force. You know, I asked them, you know, basically, is this $3 million amount? I mean, it's the it's a historic settlement amount. It obviously indicates something. Is it, you know, an indication that you all believe something wrong happened here? Mm-hmm. And so they pointed me to this statement and they said, while the settlement is not an admission of liability, the parties agree that Lyndon's shooting was a tragedy. The settlement represents combined efforts to reach a compromise that resolves the case outside of formal litigation and provides Lyndon with resources for long-term lifetime care. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So do we know the timeline for a ruling on this? Do you have any sense or have you heard from the community like how people think District Attorney Sim Gill is going to rule on this? You know, I have no idea. So no, I don't know how long we can we might have to wait for a, a ruling on the criminal side of this thing. Hmm. You know, Sim Gill just ruled on a case, you know, the other day from when I first started at the Tribune, you know, from I think it was 2018. So it's like there's a precedent for these, these rulings taking years. Um, I know the family in their statement said that a ruling was long overdue. Yeah. But it, it's really, you know, it's really up to Sim. And it's a, it's going to be a hard case. You know, it might be why it's taking so long as he's trying to seek expert opinions like he did on another recent hard case, DeLorean Pickivit, that he just ruled on. So we'll see. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court. And this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. 
Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. The Tribune, the Salt Lake Tribune, has done a lot of analysis on police use of force in Utah. What did you guys learn about police shootings in the past year? So, yeah, we we have a few kind of high-level findings that we found. And so, basically, we, the Salt Lake Tribune, has maintained this database of police shootings since, I think, the first shooting that we have in it goes back to 2004. Mm-hmm. So, kind of a large swath of data. But most of our main findings came from this 10-year period between 2010 and 2020. And so, we found that during that time period, the people who were being shot by police in Utah, basically, the percentage of people of color being shot by police in Utah, that was higher than their population makeup. Whereas, you know, for white people, it's lower than their population makeup in Utah. And, you know, police tell us that that's not a good comparison. You know, you need to be able to um, compare people shot with people contacted by police. You know, they say there's a denominator problem there because police don't come into contact with everybody. Basically, it's kind of a convoluted, like wonky thing. But there are other people that say that analysis like what we did is sound and revelatory. And then another thing that we found, and this relates to this case, is that more than 40% of police shootings in Utah involve somebody um, who was in some kind of mental health crisis. So, you know, Lyndon falls into that category. And actually, like experts we were talking to, you know, say that that number is probably higher just because, you know, we can't know in every single case, you know, what was going on inside a person's head, or like, maybe we didn't reach out to that family member that knew that that victim, you know, was suffering with some kind of mental illness or depression, you know, or something like that. It's just hard to know. And so the ones that we were able to pin it down to was 40, but it's possible it's much higher. Mm-hmm. I mean, the police are can be heard on camera saying, why are we here? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm not sure I know who else you would call. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who wouldn't call the police for a lot of reasons, right? These kinds of cases feel um, omnipresent. But what is the alternative for people who are with a loved one who's in crisis? Who do you call? Now, at this time, this wasn't an option. But now, you know, 988 has rolled out Mm -hmm. nationwide. And, you know, there might still be some problems with that because we've, you know, there was a case recently where somebody called nine or said they called nine eight eight in Salt Lake City and police ended up showing up and those are supposed to be kind of separate hmm. entities from my understanding. But you know, nine eight eight is an option if you're not looking for a law enforcement response. And then at least um, in some parts of the state, you know, there are local um, MCOT teams like Mental Crisis. I forget what it stands for, but it's basically you know mental health experts that will come out and deal with the case and depending on the setup of the program, there might be officers that come as well. But, you know, like the mental health professionals will will lead that response. And so it's like in Salt Lake, it's through the University of Utah, I believe, like the MCOT team. Mm -hmm. And so you'd be able to call something like that. But, you know, and all Salt Lake City PD officers are supposed to go through CIT training. From my understanding, crisis intervention team that's trained to handle situations like this. Yeah. They only work certain hours 
Mm. So I don't know if they've gotten that to 24-hour coverage yet, but Mm. there are steps being taken, but it's definitely a bit of a patchwork right now. Yeah. This $3 million settlement, I mean, it's, that's a pretty loud amount of money, you know, it says, Mm -hmm. I think quite a bit, but I'm curious if we've seen any other kind of like police reform in light of Lyndon's case? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of, I want to say within a week or two of Lyndon being shot, Salt Lake City PD enacted a policy where they're supposed to, basically they're supposed to um, like try to deescalate a situation before they use deadly force, Mm. which is, I mean, kind of what you're supposed to do anyway, but they changed their policy to have that in writing. Um, And so they changed that right after. And um, Courtney Tanner actually did a story like when that policy came out and police wouldn't go as far to say that, you know, this policy would have changed things in Lyndon's case. You know, it's like, but, you know, they did enact that. Yeah. And then um, they also kind of at the urging of former Utah jazz player Joe Ingalls, who has an autistic child, um, partnered with this organization called Culture City to do sensory training for all first responders. It wasn't just police. So, you know, like 911 dispatchers, firefighters, Mm -hmm. and just kind of trying to teach them the basics of like, you know, when you're responding to somebody that has sensory issues, maybe, you know, don't come out yelling, don't come out, you know, with flashing lights, you know, don't have your sirens blaring and stuff like that. Just because I don't, you know, apparently not many people understand, you know, the the cognitive issues that that can cause people who have sensory issues, you know, like they just don't have an awareness for it because maybe they've never encountered it before. And so this training is supposed to just give them that awareness, basically. Yeah. And those are the two things that I know of. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like for a lot of people who read this story, one of the reasons it really stuck with them is just fundamentally running down the street. I mean, is, is that a crime? Like running away from something that you're scared of, how is that a crime? And so, I mean, it's just, this is just, I think this, that's one of the reasons that this story, and similar with, like, the shooting of Bernardo Palacios Carvajal, like, similar, right? Like, when someone's running away, it's just hard to understand. And, I mean, yeah, a lot of people believe that. And it's like, in Utah, there are, I believe, two ways that a shooting can be legally justified. And one of them is if officers have a reasonable belief that, Um, their life or somebody else's life is in danger. And then the other carve out is like if somebody is a fleeing felon is what they call it. So it's like somebody who had just committed a felony and has a gun and they're running away, you know, Mm. perhaps they could use that gun to, you know, fire on other people down the street or something. So the onus is on officers to stop that. But, you know, in Lyndon's case, I, I think it must rest on whether police had a reasonable belief that he had a gun, you know, had some kind of weapon and since he wasn't listening to them, you know, they were scared that he was going to use that weapon. And so I think that's what the DA's case is going to hinge on. You know, like, did, was this officer's belief, was his fear reasonable? Yeah. I want to ask you, you've been reporting on policing for a while now, and this is a heavy beat. How have these kinds of stories impacted your reporting and, like, you? You know, I think... For my stories anyway, I mean, and this is just kind of true of criminal justice reporting in general, like it used to be that when, you know, police put out a press release or you got a document from police or, you know, whatever, it was kind of like you 
take that at its word. And, you know, it's not some, it's not necessarily a, like we'd have a higher threshold, for instance, if I was walking down the street and somebody told me they'd just been assaulted or something, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. we would take police for their word when we'd write that story, but I would need to get maybe a few checks from like the individual person that experienced something. And now it's just kind of like, you know, I don't take what they say is just like, the total truth or something like that. Or I understand the ways that like, if you say something this way, it could be said to be like hiding like the actual actor or like, you know, like time that passed, you know, or something like that, just kind of deciphering kind of code words. But like, as far as me in general, it's like when I went through like the post Academy and, you know, I didn't go through it, but it's like, you know, I went and watched some of the trainings, a lot of the scenario days when they would go and kind of do simulations. And it was just like learning, you know, their main priority every day was officer safety. You know, like we're going to get home and the person that we're dealing with is going to get home if they choose to. And so it's like just understanding that they have that mindset and then they also are kind of trained to, you know, not necessarily be afraid of everybody, but just to be looking, you know, in every interaction with anybody for like a way it could go wrong, you know? And so it's like Mm. somebody reaching into their pockets, you know, somebody who has been not listening to you and reaches into their pocket, you know, like, could that be like something for them to be concerned about? And so they're just always looking for those things. And so it's made me like, it's honestly made me like really aware of my hands when I'm like around police officers, even in a reporting situation. And like, you know, like my little black recorder, you know, it's like, I'm always so scared when I pull that out of my pocket, you know, and maybe it's unfounded fear, but it's just like having these experiences has made me just very like cautious and like, honestly, a little bit worried sometimes when I'm out, especially in like chaotic scenes, you know, like a protest or something. So yeah, it's made me made me a little bit more wary and also just kind of given me an understanding of, you know, like if I get pulled over by police or something like that, like, going to keep my hands where I can see them. I'm not going to reach for anything really fast. You know, I don't want to freak anybody out. And it's just like, I don't know that, mm-hmm. you know, somebody else might not know that. And, you know, what, what could happen to them? I don't know. You know? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Peyton Harkins, thank you so much for your time today and for your good reporting. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you guys letting me talk about it. That was really heavy. I want to share with you a few news highlights from this week before we go. Beloved local bookseller Ken Sanders is moving into a new location in the Leonardo. Ken Sanders Rare Books Part 2. The current and extremely iconic freestanding building is being bulldozed to make way for some housing and new development. The new Ken Sanders location will have a lot to offer, but opening this weekend is the Kids Reading Nook. On Saturday from 1 to 2.30 p.m., Ken Sanders himself will be reading from Where the Wild Things Are, and every child and young adult will be able to take home a book. The name of the new children's reading area is Where the Wild Things Be. But if the nip in the air makes you want to get out of town... You should know that all Utah's national parks are waiving entry fees this Saturday in honor of National Public Lands Day. But to be clear, I think you should stay in town. And here's why. This weekend is one of my favorites in Salt Lake. It is the annual Yale Crest Community Yard Sale, when everyone in the fancy Yale Crest neighborhood agrees to have their yard sales on the same day. 
Personally, I will be laced up and hitting the pavement just minutes before 8 a.m. See you out there, fellow thrifters. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Our lead producer is Emily Means. Our producer is Ivana Martinez. Our newsletter editor is Terina Ria. And our host is me, Ali Vallarta. Music is by the great local band, Mitochondria. We will be back Monday morning with more from around this city. Have a great weekend.